Welcome to the Siskiy Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. I heard a story. Uh, imagine that. I heard a story. I heard a story uh, about a guy who was going into a restaurant, and he sat down. He saw a giant sign in the wall. It said, Satisfaction Guaranteed. If we fail to fill your order, 100% will give you $500. And this guy, as he was sitting down, thought, oh, boy, this is going to be an easy 500 bucks. And so he sat down, and his waitress came up to him, and he said, I'll have an elephant tail sandwich on rye, please. She wrote down his order and went to the kitchen. And as she went to the kitchen, he heard just this explosion of voices. And, and, and that went on for a few minutes. And then the owner of the restaurant came out. And in his hand, he had five crisp $100 bills. And he laid them out on the table and said, and I'll have you know, buddy, this is the first time in 20 years we've been out of rye bread. <laughs> so in this life, right, there really is no such thing as a guarantee, right? If we're going to be honest about it, there's no such thing as a sure thing. I've said before that there's nothing certain in this life except for life is uncertain. What did Benjamin Franklin say? He said, there's two things we can be certain of in life. What's that? Death and taxes. I thought, man, Benjamin, that, that's, that's a little bit depressing. But, you know, he's right. There, there really is no guarantee in this life. Things that we thought were just a sure thing, boy, they end up just falling apart. It happens all the time. But there's one thing that we can count on. There's one thing that will never, ever fail us. There's one thing that is an absolute guarantee that's no gamble whatsoever, and that is the promises of God. God will never let us down. God will never fail us. If God says it, man, it is a done deal. It is an absolute guarantee. And that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks as we've been looking at this portion of Romans, chapters 10, or 9, 10, and 11, that deal with uh, the nation of Israel. We say, you know, how do we know that God's promises to us are a guarantee? How do we know that there is no condemnation for those of us who love Jesus, who are called according to his purpose? How do we know for a fact that our past sins have been dealt with, that that we truly are forgiven? How can we know for certain that God is working all things together for good? How do we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ? How do we know that if we mess up, And if I really blow it in my life, how do I know that God isn't going to forsake me? How do I know that God isn't going to be, well, I gave you a a chance, Pastor Jeremy, and you just blew it too hard this time, and so now I'm done. My promises, they're no longer valid for you. How can we know? One word, Israel. Israel, say Israel. Israel, right? So we have been studying through this reality that, that God is faithful, And he's faithful to Israel. And that's what we've been looking at over these last few chapters, is that God has remained faithful to Israel even when Israel is faithless. And that's been the topic. And is God done with Israel? He's not. And he's not done with Israel even though she has rejected Jesus, even though she has turned her back on God because God has made Israel a promise. Again, why is that applicable to us? Why should we care what's going on uh, between God and Israel? Because God's faithfulness to Israel demonstrates his faithfulness towards us. 
God's faithfulness to Israel demonstrates his faithfulness towards us. We know that if God will not go back on his promises to Israel, that he will not go back on his promises to us. And that brings us a great deal of encouragement. It does for me. I hope it does for you. Man, when I consider that reality that I belong to the Lord outside of my merit, I belong to the Lord outside of anything that I've achieved or done or my attitude or, or whatever, that God's going to keep his promises to me. And the security that we have should stir us towards worshiping the Lord so much more, walking with the Lord so much more closely. And I hope it does for you because, see, we have a real enemy who loves to come alongside of us and beat us down and tell us that, boy, God's promises are no longer good for us and we've gone too far and God is displeased with us and God doesn't love us anymore. That's not true. And we know that's not true. We know that God's going to see us through because we have his promises to Israel that we've been studying through and looking at. And it brings us, again, a great deal of encouragement. Now, we started chapter 11 last week. We didn't get very far, did we? We made it through the first half of verse 1. I promise we're going to get further than that this morning. We're not going to get all the way through. But verse 1, I'll just read the part that we looked at last week to bring us up to speed. It says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite. Uh, So this first section, has God cast away his people? Is God done with the Jewish people because they have uh, walked in uh, rebellion, they have rejected Jesus, they're currently rejecting Jesus, is, is, is God done with them? No. And, and this question that Paul raises is a rhetorical question. It, 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 in the Greek language, it, it comes with the, the strongest negative. Of course not. It, it's not even meant to be answered. Again, it's a rhetorical question. And we talked last week as we looked at this little section of Scripture, who are God's people in question? And without a shadow of a doubt, he's speaking about the Jewish people. He's speaking about Israel as a nation. And we looked last week at what makes Israel God's people. What is it that makes Israel God's people? And the same thing that makes Israel God's people is the same thing that makes us God's people. Uh, We're God's people just like Israel is God's people because he chose them. And he chose us. Uh, God's people are God's people because God chose them to be his people. And, and that's just the reality. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant last week. Those promises that God made to the patriarch Abraham. Abraham, again, uh, the very beginning of the Jewish people. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So those promises that God made to Jacob where they were passed down from father to son, father to son. And so it wasn't about Abraham and his good. It was about God and the promises that he made. And again, we were greatly encouraged by that reality, that it's not our ability to hang on, but we are kept by the strength of the Lord. And so Paul, in the very beginning of Romans chapter 11, he makes this declaration, God is not done with his people, emphatically, without a shadow of a doubt. And now he begins to throw out some pieces of evidence to support that statement. God is not done with the Jew. Well, how do we know? Well, Paul says, take a look at my life. Old man, take a look at... No, he doesn't say it like that. He, he tells us, he just says, hey, look at my life as an example. Uh, verse 1, continuing on, certainly not, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Uh, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So Paul here uses himself as the first piece of evidence. Because why? Because Paul is a Jew. Paul says if God has cast away the Jews, if they are not to be saved, if they're all to be lost, then explain to me this, he says. How is it that I was saved? And Paul's conversion is an amazing conversion, right? I mean, this is a pretty supernatural event there on the road to Damascus. As he's on his way to actually persecute Jews, he had this encounter with Jesus that would change his life forever. And we are benefiting from that, uh, from that transaction today. But, but Paul's conversion, it's recorded for us not once, not twice. It's recorded for us three times in the book of Acts. And it's recorded for a reason. It's almost as if God wanted us to kind of get the point uh, about Paul being saved. Uh, you know, it goes on to say later on in 1 Corinthians that uh, Paul's salvation was a, a kind of a model, a picture of the rest of Israel getting saved. And we won't get into that this morning, but if you like to dig into things, check it out. Just how Paul actually was saved will be a picture when you study through Zechariah 12, 13 of what it looks like actually for the Jew to get saved. It, it's crazy. There's a lot of parallels there. We won't get into that this morning. Uh, but Paul says, look at me in his example. I'm Jew, I was saved. And that's something that's important for us to remember this morning, uh, is that the, the entirety, almost, of the early church, they were Jews. They were all Jewish people. Remember the day of Pentecost? There when Peter preached, and the Holy Spirit descended, and 3,000 people were saved, and all the the. the the, the, the disciples were speaking in different tongues and, and the Jews that were coming from other places around the, the kingdom understood in their dialect. All those people that were saved on the day of Pentecost, those people were Jews, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And so it, it's important for us to, to understand that. Uh, the Gentiles didn't really begin to get saved until later. Remember when Peter had that vision there was Peter, he was hanging out at Simon the Tanner's house, and he was on the roof, and he's hungry. It was lunchtime. He's getting ready to, to go fix lunch, and he has this vision where God let down this blanket, and that blanket was filled with all sorts of, of unclean food, shrimp cocktail and lobster tails and, you know, pulled pork sandwiches and, and barbecued ribs and, and all the stuff that was just unclean, and the Lord said, take eat, Peter and eat, and, and Peter's like, I'm not going to touch anything unclean, Lord. And you remember what the Lord told Peter? Don't call the things unclean, which I have made clean. Now, was he talking about the pulled pork sandwich or the barbecue ribs? No, he was talking about the Gentiles. Because right then, as that, that vision was finishing up, knock, 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 knock. There's someone other, hey, Pete, there's somebody here to see you. And it was the messengers that Cornelius had sent. Hey, he wanted to hear the gospel. And Peter went, and then that was the, the, the Gentiles began to get saved at that point. Then Paul was converted. Then he went on his missionary trips. All that to say, the Jews formed the early part of the church. The Gentiles didn't come to later. But, but what a beautiful picture. What a, a beautiful reminder for us this morning. As we sit in this place, all bunch of different people from all over the place, that, man, the gospel is for everybody. It's not just for the Jew. It's not just for the Gentile. It's not for a, a specific class of people. Man, the gospel is for everybody. But what I really love about this whole situation where Paul uses himself as the example is that Paul is really saying, hey, look at my life. If God can save me, and God can save anybody. If God can save me, God can save anybody. And, you know, never underestimate the power 
of your story. Never underestimate the power of your testimony as you're sharing Jesus with people. See, I have a tendency uh, to be a little bit argumentative. I like to be a little analytical, and I like to get to the point and, and, and hash things out. But, you know, there's something that you just can't argue with when you say, look at my life and what a transformation has taken place. That, that, that's uh, above and beyond any sort of argument that can be made. And it's so powerful. See, look at what, and that's what Paul did. He said, look at what God has done in my life. If God can save me, then God can save anybody. And I say that all the time, personally. Because if God can save me, well, he really can save anybody. And I know you guys know this, but you know me as Pastor Jeremy. Literally, when I run into people who knew me as a youth, they are just blown away. They, they can't believe, literally, that I'm not, you know, in some sort of prison workshop or something. And it really, it encourages me. Because I don't get the glory. It glorifies the Lord. And that's what we do when we share our personal testimony. It's not about us and what we've been through. Don't glorify your story. Glorify your Lord, the Lord through your story. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul says, man, if God can save me, he can save anybody. Because Paul, you couldn't get much further away from the Lord than Paul was. Right? If you're a bank robber or you're a crackhead or you're a car thief or whatever, at least there's this sense in your life that you are a shady individual, that you're not doing what you ought to be doing. But you see, Paul, Paul was far from God, and he was a religious zealot. Paul was far from God, but he thought he was close to God. See, Paul, man, he knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. If there was a religious activity or sacrifice or something to partake of, and Paul was there, he was doing it. But Paul, all the while he was playing Mr. Religious Guy, he was dragging Christians out of their meeting places and homes and beating them and imprisoning them and even watching them put to death. And if Paul can be saved, then you can be saved. And let that encourage you because there's lots of people in our lives that we know and that we love and who we desire to be saved. Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, coworkers. Man, if God can save me, if God can save Paul, he can save them too. Uh, be encouraged by that. This morning, but don't underestimate the power of your story like Elijah, or not like Elijah, but Paul. Elijah is the next point. So after Paul uses himself as the first piece of evidence, then he goes on to say, Or do you not know what scripture says of Elijah? How he pleaded with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the vine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men whom have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So Paul here, after he uses himself as an example, he says, and have you also forgotten about Elijah? Uh, exhibit B, uh, Elijah. Now, Elijah probably one of my favorite Old Testament characters. Elijah was a prophet of God, and he was just, he was the man. He really was. Uh, you know, Elijah lived in a time when, you know, Israel was not doing very good at all. Uh, the nation of Israel was split into two separate kingdoms. There was the northern ten tribes who kept the, the, the name Israel, and then there was the, the two southern tribes that uh, made the southern kingdom who went by the name of Judah. 
And Israel was far from the Lord. They were worshiping Baal, uh, the god of uh, success and prosperity. They were worshiping Ashroth, the goddess of sensuality. And, and they were really a mess. And Elijah went to the king and the queen of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. Right, Jezebel, even if you don't know the Bible, there's a connotation that goes with Jezebel that you are familiar with. If you were called Jezebel, you would not be a happy camper, right? That's because she was a dirty, stinky, rotten woman. And uh, that's what's implied when someone calls you a Jezebel. And so wicked, very wicked. And Elijah went and he was just bold in his proclamation of the Lord in a day and age where nobody was really interested in hearing about the Lord. That encourages me. Because more and more we are living in a day and age where people are not very excited to hear about the Lord. In fact, people are getting more and more cranky when you bring up the Lord. But Elijah, and it, 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 it didn't affect him. He continued to just proclaim the truth. He got discouraged, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but he continued to just proclaim the truth. And that's what he did. He went to the king and queen of uh, Israel, uh, the wicked and the wicketer. -er. I guess you could probably not say that, but you know what I mean. They were both wicked. Jezebel was even more wicked than King Ahab. She was the one wearing the pants, just so you know the backstory. Anyways, Elijah goes and says, hey, listen, he, this is wrong. We need to, we need to turn things around. Stop uh, causing the people to worship, worship false idols. And he said, because you have gone down this path, man, there's going to be a serious drought. And there was a terrible drought. Remember Elijah and the story of the widow, where he went to this widow in, in, in this encounter between him and her? He's, man, he shows up on the scene, and there's this widow and her son, and they're getting ready to take the last of their flour and the last of their oil. She says, we're just going to make this last little cake and eat it and die. Pretty depressing situation. That's how bad the drought was. But still, Israel wouldn't turn. And so, again, Elijah says, man, I've had it. I, family meeting. And he called all of Israel, said, all right, here on Mount Carmel, I want to see all of Israel, and I want to see the 450 prophets of Baal. We're going we're to have a showdown. And that's what they did. It was just like that. It was a showdown between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah said, all right, we're going to determine today whose God is the real God. We're going to build an altar, each one of us. And on that altar, we're going to offer up a sacrifice. And the God who consumes that sacrifice by fire from heaven, that's the real God. Capish? And they said, Capish. They agreed. And so Elijah says, you guys go first. They built their altar. Boy, they put the sacrifice on it. Boy, and they're dancing around. They're crying out to their God all day and nothing. And this is another reason I like Elijah. Elijah, he starts getting a little sarcastic. He's like, what's wrong, guys? Your God too wimpy to show up? Or maybe he's just busy. Is he on the potty? Is he unavailable? And I'm just like, oh, man, that's so great. I love his sarcastic side. I mean, that's the connotation I'm giving. I'm being a little bit dogmatic. And I'm paraphrasing, just so you know. If you go back and read, you're like, that's not what it says. They didn't say capiche. No, I know. I'm just summarizing. Uh, but there they are, and, and nothing. And Elijah finally says, all right, my turn. Your God didn't show up. And just to make sure that he was clear, they took buckets and buckets and buckets of water, and they doused all the wood and the sacrifice. And it says Elijah prayed, and fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice, not just the wood, not just the, the, the altar, but even the ground under the altar. There was nothing left but a crater where their sacrifice was. It was clear. That was it. And Elijah looked to the people and said, how long will you limp between two opinions? Two opinions. 
If God is God, serve him. And if Baal is Baal, serve him. Quit sitting on the fence. And then remember what he did? He took the 450 prophets of Baal down into the valley and he slaughtered them. He executed them, rightfully so. That's what they deserved. That was the law. And you think in that moment, from Elijah's perspective, yes, man, God had a victory. He showed Baal to be a false prophet. Man, this is going to be a turning point. I can smell revival on the horizon. He goes back to Ahab and Jezebel, and what did they say? Man, you know what, Elijah? You killed our 450 prophets. Jezebel says this. Man, if you're not dead like they are by this time tomorrow, let me be dead, she says. Uh-oh. And far from being repentant, far from revival, they just cranked up the rebellion. And what does Elijah do, man? He gets discouraged and he bails. And he goes into the wilderness and we find him underneath a broom tree just saying, Lord, take my life. I'm so bummed out. I'm so discouraged. And he goes up onto the mountain. The Lord shows up and he kind of gives him enough energy, restores him, gets him some food and some water. So I want you to meet me up on the mountain. He goes up and there he is in the cave. And the Lord shows up to him. Remember that, that section of scripture where there was the, the earthquake and the wind and the fire? But God wasn't in any of those things. It was a still, small voice. And God spoke to Elijah. He said, Elijah, man, what's up? What are you doing? What are you doing here? And that's when Elijah, like our text says, says, Lord, man, smoke your people. There's nobody that's for you except for me. I'm the only holy one left. See, Elijah was dealing with some very discouraging circumstances. You can't deny that. Right? You're on the run. Imagine if the, the president of the United States was like, you're dead. I'm putting out a hit on you. You would probably be slightly discouraged, right? And so there were some very real circumstances in Elijah's life that would, that would cause him to be discouraged. But his perspective, man, was all wrong. His perspective was completely, what did he say? I'm the only one left. And what did God tell him? No, Elijah, you're actually not. There's 7,000 other people just like you who love me, who are serving you. And let that be an encouragement to us. When we look around and we see our circumstances and we feel like the world is dark and everything is falling apart and things are never going to get better, man, know that your perspective is wrong. God was on the throne in Elijah's, you know, situation. And God is on the throne in your situation. He's at work. He's going to see you through just like he saw Elijah through. Be encouraged by that. Uh, But, you know, Elijah, it's kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? He says, there's nobody righteous but me. Like, let that sink in for just a second. Like, what what are you saying, Elijah? Like, what about all the other holy people? Uh, Nobody is righteous like I am. And and I'm not saying that that was his motive, but it is a warning for us. I mean, be careful about uh, the way that we would judge other people or uh, look down at other people. Or, you know, sometimes we can have this tendency to see somebody in a, a time of struggle and to think that, boy, we're, we're more spiritual than they are. Uh, never forget that we all have our issues. We all have our struggles. We all have our thing. We're all trying our best just to follow the Lord and walk in obedience. Uh, but remember, it, it's not by your own merit that you're saved. And be careful to take the stance that you're holier than thou. And it creeps in so subtly. And sometimes you don't even realize it. But be on guard. Jesus warned about that. Remember, he said, you know, why does a guy with a pole sticking out of his eye trying to get the speck out of the other guy's eye? So often we're so critical of other people because we can see their sin so clearly. Don't forget how bad your sin looks on other people. 
where our tendency is to judge our own uh, lives according to, to what, we, what, what, what we meant to do, really, and we judge others by their actions. Just be careful. It, it's something to, to consider. But Elijah, kind of going back to, to Paul's theme, I'm sorry that was a little bit longer of rabbit trail than I meant it to be. Uh, Paul brings this up as a piece of evidence. Why? He says, hey, God's not done with the Jew. He wasn't done with the Jew in Elijah's day. They were walking in crazy rebellion, weren't they? Worshiping at the Ashtoreth pole. I won't even get into what that looked like. That is not fit for church, even though it's what is in the Bible. It's bad stuff they were doing. But still, even in the midst of that rebellion, God said there was a remnant. In Paul's day, there was a remnant. Today, the Jew has fully rejected Jesus by and large. And do you know that there's still a remnant? There are many Jews who are saved, individual Jews who are saved. And so that's really Paul's point. He says, you know what? It, all hope is not lost. There is still uh, a remnant. And he goes on to say, this remnant, how does this remnant exist? This remnant exists, he says uh, there in verse 5, even so then, at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. So Paul here says, man, this remnant that really illustrates God's faithfulness exists not because of works, but because of grace. Uh, and, and again, what is grace? Well, when we talk about it's a very churchy word, we use it all the time. If you're new to church, you, you might have heard it, but what does it mean? Really, God's grace is his favor given to us even though we're unworthy. God's grace is a gift. God's grace towards us is something that cannot be earned. God's grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Grace, by definition, has nothing to do with you or me. It's the old acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. It doesn't get any simpler than that. It is a beautiful thing. Works, on the other hand, what is meant by works? What do you get when you work? You receive a paycheck, a wage. It's what is owed to you. It's what you earned. And here's the thing with salvation. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot be owed salvation. It's not something that we can earn. Why? Because it's a gift. By definition, a gift is not something you buy. For, well, I'm, you know, that's a bad analogy as adults because we buy ourselves gifts all the time, right? It's our birthday. We're buying a gift. But a gift from somebody else, by definition, is not something that you deserve or earned. It's simply that. It's a gift. And that's what Paul's saying. It can't be works and grace. It's one or the other. Because if it's works, then grace isn't grace. And if it's grace, then works is no longer works. Because one you work for, one is a gift. It's either or. It's a dichotomy. You can't have both at the same time. After church today, for lunch, you can have Taco Bell or you can have Mexican food. You can't have both at the same time. You see what I'm saying? And that's the way it is. It's not works and grace. It's works or grace. And we know that we're saved by grace. That's what Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9 tell us. It's not by, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. It's not of us. And you say, well, what about James? Right? Well, what about James? Because James says faith without works is what? 
dead. He said, well, then, then how does that all play out? If faith without works is dead, it would appear that, that works is a part of the equation. Here's the thing about that. And, and it's interesting to me how often people will bring this up in uh, discussion uh, as if there's some sort of contradiction. There's no contradiction here. Peter and Paul, they agree with each other. See, once you are saved, once you are saved, works will follow. That's just a re- Once you're saved, works will follow. We don't work so we can be saved. Works happen in our life because we are saved. It's that natural response that comes into my life and yours. When you sit back and consider God's wonders, wow, God, I was bound for destruction. I was bound for hell. I didn't deserve for you to reach down into the filth of my life and rescue me, but you did. You provided a way for me. And when we become we come to the place where we start to come to terms with that. We say, wow, Lord, that is so amazing. The Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And what a beautiful thing that is. Not to mention that we are new creatures in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. And our lives begin to change. All of a sudden, I have a hunger for God. I have a hunger for his word. That was never there before. I have a conviction and a brokenness over my sin that didn't exist. I have a desire to obey the Lord. I have a desire to tell other people about the Lord. I have the capacity to love folks in a way that I never could before. All those things are works as a result of our salvation. You can't get those things uh, out of order. And there's an ebb and flow to the works of our life as Christians. I understand that by and large, that's the way that it it works. (laughs) We're not saved by works, but works are a result. And I would say this. If you're here this morning, you're like, man, I've been a Christian for 40 years. And you're the exact same cranky piece of work you were 40 years ago. And there's not a single shred of evidence in your life that you've been saved. And I believe once saved, always saved. But you might want to evaluate and make sure that you were once saved to begin with. And I mean that in all honesty. The Bible says we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. There should be some inventory and some self-evaluation. There should be work. But, but don't get those things mixed. It's, it's one or the other. And that's Paul's uh, whole, whole point here. Uh, and so Paul then, after he says, you know, there's a remnant that's saved, right? God is not done with the Jew, right? There are, is a remnant that's saved. You look, he says, look at my life. I've been saved. He says, look at what Elijah said. There was a remnant then. There's a remnant now. Uh, but then he kind of goes on to say, well, what about the majority, right? Paul has defended the minority, the remnant, the few, the individual. But what about the majority? What about the, what about the nation as a whole? Now Paul addresses that in verse 7. What then? He says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What was it that Israel sought? They sought righteousness. But how did they seek that righteousness? They sought it by works. You can't uh, seek or receive righteousness from works. So Israel has not uh, attained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it. So who are the elect? Boy, we are. Or, or the Jew, anybody who put their faith in Jesus. And what have we attained? We've attained righteousness. How? Through faith, by grace, in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And, and, and Paul goes on to say that that's the way it's going to be because the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see 
and bow down their backs always. So Israel, they tried to obtain righteousness through works. Couldn't do it. The elect, they did obtain righteousness. How? Through uh, grace by faith. And again, we cannot earn God's favor. If anybody could earn God's favor through righteousness, it was Paul. It was Paul the Apostle. This is what he, these are just some of Paul's credentials that he lays out for the Philippians. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more. You think you have flesh, or you think you have confidence in your religiosity, in your works? Paul says, what you've done in the religious world doesn't hold a candle to the things that I have done in the religious world. He says, I am more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But he goes on to say, but what uh, things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost. Paul says, man, if there again was a religious right activity, sacrifice, I've been there. I've done that twice, forwards and backwards, twice on Sunday. I, I, I was the guy, Paul said. And you know what I found? I found it to be nothing. Why? You see, your best effort on your best day doesn't add up to a hill of beans. The Bible says that our righteousness, the best we can do, is but filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. And so that's what Paul is talking about, man. this reality, this truth. Uh, we can't find salvation through our own works. And then he goes on to describe why it is that the majority of Israel is still lost. Do you notice that? Does anybody have any Jewish friends? Have you ever tried to share Jesus with a Jewish person? And you can go to the most clear passages in the Old Testament that show Jesus in an absolute clear light, and they will still reject. Intelligent. I, I don't know. So I, I watch Ben Shapiro every now and then. He's a, a, a political kind of news pundit guy, Daily Wire guy. He's Jewish, right? Brilliant. He's such a smart little turd, but he will not believe in Jesus. He's like almost too smart for his own good. And you say, how can this be? Because the Jews have been blinded. That's what it says. The majority of the Jews, as a nation, there is this spirit of stupor. Their eyes are blinded. That, that word for blinded can also be translated hardened. Their hearts have been hardened. You can lay it out and they still won't get it because poof, there's a spiritual denseness that is there. And you say, man, how is that fair? That God would do that to them. Here's what you have to understand is that God will not force himself upon anybody. He's given us all free will. And God's will is that none should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of his son, Jesus. But he won't force that upon anybody. And if you want to be hard-hearted towards the Lord, he will allow you to be hard-hearted towards him. If you don't want to see, you won't see. If you're uninterested in truth, then you will not understand. And there's a lesson in that for us. And you can come into this church every single Sunday. You can listen to Christian radio all day, every single day. But if you are not interested in belonging to the Lord, if you really don't care about truth, if you really don't want to belong, then you just won't get it. You just won't understand. No matter how somebody articulates, no matter how good the argument is, unless there is a desire in your own heart to want God. And he's given you enough. He's given us all enough of a desire. Because don't make the mistake to think that we were good enough at some point to go seeking out God on our own. But he's given each one of us enough to go by. 
But if you don't want it, if you don't respond, then he will let you stay blind. And that's why Jesus taught in parables. His disciples asked him, Lord, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus responded and he told them, he said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it has not been given. And he talks about, for, uh, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Uh, therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And he goes on and he says the exact same thing, that seeing they won't see uh, and hearing, they won't hear that their, their hearts have grown dull. And that's just the reality. Man, and it's a sobering truth to not play religious games and just go to church and think that you're, you're somehow doing something that's, that's good if you're not interested. Elijah said, how long will you live between two opinions? And don't, don't play games. The answer really is to seek God. Right? To desire him. To, to pray, ask him to soften your heart. And the Bible tells us that if we seek him, we'll find him. It, that if we draw close to him, he will draw close to us. And so they were blinded. There's a hardness. It, it takes place today. And uh, Paul goes on to quote David, where he says that their table will become a stumbling block. And say, what is that all about? Their table becomes a stumbling block. What does that mean? Well, it's a very Jewish thing. He's referring to uh, Jewish tradition, uh, the table of Passover, uh, the table of showbread, uh, the altar of, it's all of these different tables that are involved in religious activity. Here's what you have to understand, is that the Jewish tradition is so packed with pictures of Jesus, it's not even funny. We could literally just hang out until Christmas, and we could just go through all of the different pictures that we find of Jesus in Jewish tradition. You just take Passover, for instance. The whole situation of Passover. God's people, they were in bondage in Egypt 400 years. God rescued them out of that through the plague of the death angel. He said, you guys take a, a, a lamb that's spotless, without blemish, sacrifice that animal, apply the blood to the doorposts, and the way that they were to apply it actually formed a cross when you look at it. And when death comes, it will pass you over. It was through that event that they were set free from their bondage. They were given newness of life. Think about that from the perspective of this side of the cross. The blood applied in the shape of a cross. That we apply the blood to our life and death passes over. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're given new life. I mean, and, and again, there's a whole situation with the setter dinner and the the, the, the way that they, they, they did the matzah. Matzah is what we use for communion. It, it's not a saltine cracker. I know it tastes like a saltine cracker, but it's actually a special cracker. It's baked without leaven. Why? Because leaven is a picture of sin, and Jesus is without sin. As that bread is being made, it's striped. Why? Because by Jesus' stripes, we're healed. That bread is pierced. Why? Because he was pierced for our iniquities. It's just Jesus, 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 Jesus. And in that dinner, they would take this bread, and and we really don't have time to get into it, but if you are uh, one who likes to dive into crazy things, look into the afikoman. The afikoman was a part of the setter dinner, that traditional Passover meal that Jews would celebrate. And the pictures of Jesus are incredible. All that to say this, the Jews don't believe because there's a lack of evidence. 
There's evidence all around them in the scriptures, in their tradition, in nature. I mean, we talk about it all the time. When we choose to not believe, it's not a matter of evidence. God has revealed himself to humanity through nature, through his word, through his son. We are without excuse, Paul says at the beginning of Romans. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a surplus of pride. And that's the truth. And so we see that, man, even now, Paul says, the Jews are going to be blinded. That's it, by and large. There's a blindness that will take place, and we'll get into when that blindness will end on Wednesday night. But Paul continues on. He says, not to be too hard on Jews. I know, so we're going to finish with those scriptures. I just want to look at one more in, just in reference, because that next verse is important. Verse 11 says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Have they stumbled that they... No. See, God is still not done with the Jew. Even though I've rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected, his promises are sure, which brings us back again to our original point of rejoicing. That God is faithful even when we're faithless. We can look at God's dealing with the Jews. We can see his faithfulness demonstrated to them. And we can be encouraged in knowing that and in my life. Where I've been faithless, God is faithful. Where I have been weak, he's strong. Where I've dropped the ball, his sacrifice is more than sufficient. Man, so we can rest assured in that. We can be freed up to serve the Lord with all that we have. We don't have to get bent out of shape when we look at the world and see the way things are going. And we ought not to be those who have a judgmental eye towards others. And in light of how good God is and what he's done for us, Man, I pray that it just frees us up to worship him all the more. That we would be a group of people, even as Paul said, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That as we this morning consider just how good God has been to us, that those areas that even this morning that we hold back, where we're reserved, where we're not all in, that we would take the advice of Elijah. How long are you going to live between two opinions? How long this morning, dear brother and sister? Don't, don't, Don't live in the world. Don't limp between two opinions. Don't, don't let God's faithfulness cause us to, to lead a life of carnality, but let it l- cause us to live a life of all the more commitment and love. And then for those who are in this place, boy, if you don't know the Lord, maybe you're part of the other category. Man, I've heard a lot of messages, and I've been real closed off to the Lord. And you're at another crossroads this morning, my friend. You've got another opportunity to say, Lord, I desire to know you. I desire to belong to you. And you have an opportunity this morning, if you don't know Jesus, to have your sins forgiven today, to leave this place with that burden of guilt lifted. You can leave this place with that guarantee. See, the guarantee of God and his promises, it's not universal, it's not for the world, it's for the believer. And I want you to know that you can have that. If you desire it this morning, say, I don't know how, it's really easy. The Bible says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. Or confess with your mouth, yeah, and believe with your heart. What? That Jesus is God. That he died on the cross. I love that you guys are saying it back to me now. That's perfect. Yes, we know. We've got it. That Jesus is God. That he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose three days later. Say, man, that's too easy. Exactly. That's it. It's not about you and your works. It's about trusting the Lord. And so if that's you today, if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to be surrendered, 
then do it. Pastor Dave, he's going to come up, and he's going to be, by the baptismal, he's going to be ready to baptize anybody who wants to get baptized. Man, if today you say, I want to be all in for Jesus, then come be all in for Jesus. He'll pray with you. He'll dunk you. And what is baptism? Baptism is just an outward expression of an inward change. Baptism is that picture of really the cross of what Jesus did for us. As you get dunked under the water, you're identifying with Jesus being buried. And he died for our sins. And you're saying, I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to my will, my hopes, my dreams. Jesus, I want to be alive in you. And as you come out of the water, man, you're identifying with the resurrection. To walk out this life in newness by the power of the Holy Spirit really is a beautiful thing. And so if you've never been saved, man, come forward. I wish I could do it for you, but I can't. Choice you have to make for yourself. Uh, but also, maybe you've been saved for a long time, and I always want to give those that opportunity. Uh, baptism is not optional in the Christian life. And I don't mean to say that it, your salvation hinges on it, because it doesn't. The thief on the cross had no opportunity to get baptized. But it's important, and it's a commandment. Jesus wants us to get baptized. He said, go forth and baptize in the name of the Father, Son. It wasn't uh, an optional thing. And in the, the early church, the being saved and being baptized, you just go get baptized. It was synonymous. It's just one and the same. I'm saved today, I'm getting baptized right now. So sometimes as Christians, it's one of the things that we put off. If you've been putting it off, man, I'm in my church clothes. Who cares? They'll dry. It's more important to walk in all that the Lord has for you. And we talked about those things that we hold back. Just walk in unapologetic, uh, just, just walk and follow the Lord unapologetically this morning. So lots of things going on. I know it can kind of get confusing at this point, but... If you want to, to, to come and pray, you want to get baptized, you want to get saved, and come do that. Uh, be some elders at the back of the room ready to pray for you. Maybe you just have something else going on that you want to pray about. Uh, for the rest of us, we're going to come forward and we're going to take communion as I close this out in a song or two. And what an awesome opportunity we have this morning just to go before the Lord and say, Lord, thank you. As you take in the, the cracker and the juice, Jesus said, remember me in these very tangible things. Remember me in these things. Remember that it was by my body nailed to the cross, that it was by my blood that was shed, that you're forgiven. We need to be reminded often of what Jesus did for us and who we are as a result. And so come and partake. Be refreshed, remember, and just enjoy that time with the Lord this morning. So if you want to come get baptized, come do that. If you want to get saved, you can pray in your seat. You can pray with Dave. You can pray with an elder. The rest of us, we're going to come take communion. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, so much again for just your, your grace and your mercy, your love for us. And I pray, Lord, that again, that as we just look at this, this, this passage of Scripture, Lord, that demonstrates just how faithful you are to your people, to the Jew, to Israel. Again, Lord, that we would be encouraged that, that we belong to you, and there's nothing that can change that, not even when we mess it up. Lord, and again, that wouldn't spur us on to a life of carnality because consequences are real. But, Lord, that would encourage us to just walk in all that you have for us. Lord, I pray for those in this place, Lord, who have been holding back. Lord, that you would, that you would come alongside of them as they desire to, to walk in all that you have for them. Lord, I pray for those who are contemplating making a decision to allow you into their life, to belong to you, Lord, as you've spurred them on by your Holy Spirit. I just pray that people would find that, that courage to do that, Lord. And uh, Lord, for the rest of us, we're just so grateful as we come to the table. 
to remember who you are and what you've done. You truly are amazing and good. And we rejoice this morning as we come to the table and remember your goodness towards us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.